Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Amos 2, verses 6 to 7. It will come up. There you go. That's nice. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They paint after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. And then Amos 5, verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then finally, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So hi again, everybody. Thanks for your, um, for your encouragement. I hope... Uh, I reciprocate over the years. Um, well, this is the third in the series of talks on the Minor Prophets. Um, Amos, the one we're looking at this morning, is only nine chapters long. Some of them are only a couple of chapters long. Um, I think one of them is just one chapter long. Um, that's why they're the Minor Prophets. It's not because what they've got to say is minor in any way. Um, they're minor in length, but massive in content. Um, so this morning when we look at, uh, at Amos, um, I think it's a message that, well, I, I've been reading it over and over and over and, and, and seeking what is this about, what's the prophet saying, and what, what did he say, and what's he saying now? Um, and it's, it's had a, a, a really big impact, a massive impact in me as I've been looking at it, and especially as today being the commissioning um, terrified me, um, but in a good way. So I, th- I think it's going to have a massive impact on all of us if we listen um, and if we allow God's words, not my words, um, God's words to do, their, do its work in us. It's going to be massive. So we're not going to go through the whole nine Chapters, I'd love to because there's just so much stuff there. We could do a couple of years series, so Jacko will talk about that. Um, let's see what the Lord has to say and what the Lord has to say to us. So the first verse. That's really small, isn't it? So I apologise. Can you read that? A bit of squinting, kind of tilt your head a bit. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. 
So this all happened around about 760 to 750 BC, um, around about the same time as Hosea and Isaiah and a guy that you might have heard of, Jonah, all the same, the same time roughly. Um, God's people had, at that point, had divided into two. God brought them into the promised land. Um, they lived together okay for a while and then they fought and one wanted to be king at the north and another was wanted to be king at the south and it just became a real mess. And the kingdom divided into two. So you had Israel to the north. They kept the name Israel. Um, Jeroboam II was their king. That's the Jeroboam that we just read about there. And to the south in Judah with Uzziah as their king. The prophecy is directed, and it says it right near the start, to the north, to Israel, primarily to Israel. Now, this guy Jeroboam II, he was a hugely successful king. He was one of their more successful kings. Um, he led Israel into victory numerous times. He increased the wealth of the nation and extended its borders, and it was a time of great prosperity for some mainly the leaders. Great prosperity. Things were going great for this king, Jeroboam. They were doing great outwardly. Looking from the outside, you think, wow, Israel is doing magnificently well. But it was outward. The Lord has plenty to say to them. And he used this guy, this guy that no one had really heard of, a shepherd from a place called Tekoa, to bring this word. Um, Tekoa was a, a little town uh, about 8 k's south of Bethlehem and this guy was a shepherd in Tekoa just down from Bethlehem we know the story of the other shepherds that were from that same kind of area um, 700 and something years later of course so Amos wasn't one of those shepherds but um, same kind of area about 16 k's south of, of Jerusalem so you kind of get, get where, this, where this guy's from and the Lord calls him to go to the north to Israel they wouldn't have liked him. He's kind of almost the enemy. But that's what God did. So what was the message that God had him deliver? So let's look at verse 2. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry there. Back, back, there you go. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and raises his voice from Jerusalem. It's a picture of a lion roaring. Has anyone heard a lion roar? Like in real life? Even at the zoo? Yeah? Yeah? It's, when they get that growl going, it's, it's really, really it's something to behold. And the Lord's not whispering or gently chatting away. No, he's roaring out this message. I'm guessing that one of the main fears in the life of a shepherd like Amos would be to hear the roar of a lion. His job is to be out there looking after these little sheep, defenceless really. If it wasn't for him, they'd get eaten. What do they get eaten by? Wolves and lions. So when the Lord says to him, roaring, I'm roaring at Israel, the idea of the lion would have been a terrifying image for, for Amos. Well, this is how the Lord brings the message. It's just what it is. The terrifying roar of a lion. And it's a message to Israel, his people, the people he brought out of Egypt, 
not really all that long earlier. The people he'd set his love and care and compassion on, it's a message to them. But it's a message to Israel, but he starts the message, it's kind of a bit odd. He starts the message to Israel with words not about Israel, but words of judgment against the nations around Israel. And I tried to do this map, and I'm just a terrible drawer, and I should have got Daisy or someone to do it for me. Um, but the idea is you've got Israel here, you've got Judah down here, you've got all these nations around them. And as you read through Amos, if you read through the first um, couple of chapters, you see that, that the Lord proclaims judgment on Damascus up here. And he, he, he works his way around and, and keeps on bringing words of judgment to the different places around Israel. And as he's bringing these words of judgment to the, the cities around and the countries around Israel, he kind of spirals in and focuses in like a, the crosshairs with Israel in the middle. He starts the message to Israel with words not about them, but about their neighbours. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, so that's the first one, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Wow. Straight into it. Doesn't muck around. We're straight into the, into the, the messages of, of judgment, really. And as we read through, there's 140-something verses in Amos, and about 140 of them, are words like this, words of judgment. It's not a real encouragement book, encouraging book, until you get the big picture and you see what the Lord's actually doing. Then it's super encouraging. So for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I'll not turn away its punishment. Three sins? Well, that's the fullness of sin. Damascus, you've, you've, you've filled up. You're at the limit. That's it. Number four, now you're over the limit. Judgment has overflowed. That's the idea of the three and four. Sin has reached the tipping point for God's judgment. That's it. Damascus, that's it. One by one, the Lord brings the guilty verdict upon the nations surrounding them. So you've got Damascus, then Gaza, then Tyre, then Edom, then Ammon, then Moab, then Judah, and Israel. Guilty. They're all guilty. And he pronounces judgment. So I'm not going to go through each one of them. It's, it's nine chapters. We're not going to do that. I'm guessing you want to go home at some stage. Um, but in summary, the message was the nations acted cruelly to their neighbours with incredible cruelty. They slew them. So each of these nations did this. They slew them. They didn't just, they didn't just kill them. They slew them they took them captive they made slaves of them oppression everywhere they ripped open pregnant women the idea is kill the mothers so they can't breed and kill the babies so they can't grow up and they did it to become greater and wealthier and to have more stuff to expand their, their own empires. Other people, other humans, made in the image of God, 
didn't matter. They trampled over their neighbours in violence and injustice for their own gain. Well, enough, roars the Lord. You can't keep on destroying my image bearers. Enough. Men and women were created and designed to live together, to support each other, to love him and to love each other. That's what it was about when he created. And and the Lord watches as a father. He's, He's watching the nations and he's watching as a father, caring for his children, wanting for them to get along and care for each other. And they do the exact opposite. They exploit each other, they act cruelly to each other, they just destroy each other. And the Lord doesn't ignore it. He knows what's going on. He acts patiently, providing plenty of opportunity for them to change, to repent. We're going to hear, I guess, in a couple of weeks' time about Jonah. I won't give the punchline to it, but God sends Jonah to one of, one, of these, one of the nations around, not that far, from Israel. He tells him, stop, you've got to repent. And I'll let Jacko tell you the end result. We know the bit about the fish, but there's more to the story. He gives him a chance to repent. But they don't. And finally he says, enough. That's it. And he acts. He puts an end to their violence. And one by one, he, he announces the punishment, the, the judgment that's going to come. He just, just, the Lord's going to destroy them for their cruelty, for their inhumanity, for their violence, for their hatred to each other. But hang on a second. These are pagan nations. Does that kind of sound weird that Lord, the Lord's going to judge these guys? Do they even know what they're doing is wrong? Did anyone think that? I, I, I did as I was reading it. Hang on, these are... These are pagan nations. They're not the ones that have God's law. How can they be judged for this stuff? Aren't they just doing what they do? Just doing what lawless people do. Right? Well, even though these nations don't acknowledge him as their God, which they don't, he's still their God. God is everyone's God. Whether they believe in him And trust in him or not, Yahweh is your neighbour's God, whether your neighbour acknowledges him or not. That guy that calls himself an atheist at work, God is his God. God is everyone's God. I think we forget that sometimes. I know I forget that sometimes. Here's something you might not have thought about. All men... And all women have an inbuilt knowledge of God. Created in his image, even after the fall, everyone still retains that image of God. It's marred and it's damaged, but it's still there. No one can escape the fact that they know that God exists. And they can't escape the fact that they still have the knowledge of right and wrong. I'm going to to prove this to you in a second. His moral law is there in everyone's heart. We twist it, we distort it, we reject it, we change it, but it's still there. I'm going to read a couple of bits out of the first chapter of Romans. So if you've got your, your Bibles or your 
devices there. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so ever since the crea- from the creation of the world, God has revealed himself. And even though we have people say, we don't know, we don't believe, we don't, I don't know if God exists or not, something in them does. And I know before I became a, before I became a believer, if someone had have asked me, do you believe in God, I would have said, uh, not really. But I knew that there was something. There was something more. And you could see it. It's, it's obvious in the world. So ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, they've been clearly, God has been clearly perceived. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then in Romans 2, he moves on to talk about the law of God being written on man's heart. Not just God's people, not just believers, but everyone's heart. God's law is written on everyone's heart. So Romans 2 says, For when Gentiles, so that's non-Jewish people, who do not have the law, so these people that don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So, right across the world, do not murder. That's a fairly common thing in every culture. Don't murder. And everyone knows that it's wrong to murder, don't they? You have the occasional, whatever the word is for those people, psycho-somethings, that have kind of blotted that part out. But on the whole, every nation, murder is wrong. Why? Why is murder wrong? What's, what's, why? Because God has placed it in everyone's heart. When they don't do... when they. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts, ah, it's wrong, but I want to do it, but it's wrong, but I want to do it, but it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. The conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So every human made in the image of God, has an inbuilt knowledge of God's existence and an inbuilt knowledge of what's required of them. Now, you can argue with me about that. I'm just going by what he says here. No one can ever say, when they stand before God, they can't say, I didn't know. Everyone's judged on the basis of what they do know. You're not judged on what you don't know, you're judged on what you do know. It's just that they... 
that what they do know, they don't do. Does that make any sense? I had about five goes at trying to do that sentence. Everyone's judged on the basis of what they do know. It's just that what they do know, they don't do it. They know it's wrong, but they do it. They justify it. So all the cruelty, the murder, the slavery, the oppression, the tearing apart of the women and their unborn, they knew it was wrong, but they did it anyway. So judgment was brought to the pagan nations, and God is judging justly. I guess just like in our own time, the cruelty, the oppression, the injustice, the murder, the slavery, the slaughter of babies in the womb, we know what's right and what's wrong, and we justify it and we excuse ourselves and redefine the sin and we keep doing the wrong because it benefits us. If there's something I can gain out of it, we'll do it. Then when he's finished with the Gentiles, he moves on to Judah. Are we having fun yet with this message? This has been my life for the last couple of weeks. When he's finished with the Gentiles, he moves on to Judah. Chapter 2, verse 4. <laughs> We're four verses into chapter 2, and it's a nine-chapter thing. It's going to be fun. Thus says the Lord. So we've circled around, and now we're at Judah, just below Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not rebuke, revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of God and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray. So the issue with Judah wasn't that they rebelled against the inbuilt moral code that God had in their hearts. They rejected the explicit, the clear, the written and proclaimed law of their God, Yahweh. It's a whole different level of sin. I guess the people that don't know the law, don't know God's words, it's easier for them to justify and to excuse themselves for the things that they do. But for the people of Judah, they had God's law. It was written in stone. They knew it. And they rejected it. They were, they were the chosen people called out of the pagan nations, set apart by God, visited by God. He lived amongst them. And he spoke to them. And he gave them his words. And he got them to write it down. They'd received so much more light than their pagan neighbours and they still rebelled. They rejected the law of God. They rejected his ways. They rejected him. They replaced the knowledge of truth and replaced it with their own truth. You hear that saying, you know, this is my truth? I hate that saying doesn't mean anything. They replaced the knowledge of truth and replaced it with their own truth. And if their truth goes against the truth, it's a lie. And their lies led them astray into all sorts of sin and rebellion against God. And we see that happening today. We reject the Creator. We're all just a, re a result of random atoms bouncing off each other. A big bang out of nothing. No God, no creation, just randomness. No creator. There's no creator. There's no clear 
objective morality, so nothing ultimately matters. If there's no God, make up your own morality. Make up your own reality. You choose what's real. You choose your truth. If there's no God, do whatever you want. Well, there is a God, and he cares. He cares about his creation. He cares about those he made in his image. And he cares enough to put a stop to the lies. Because those lies are leading them astray. He says, this can't go on. So to his own people, Judah, he says, enough. Now the Lord turns to the northern kingdom, Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. So we'll sell them so we can get some new sandals and even if there's just some dust on the head, let's sell that as well. Pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. Well, Israel had long ago rejected the true worship of God. They had rival temples at Bethel and Dan, each with its own made, handmade golden calf. They claimed Yahweh as their God while worshipping gods made with their own hands. And now their false religion and worship was leading them to run headlong into the same sins as their pagan neighbours. What a disaster. Worship of Yahweh was supposed to show itself in the day-to-day lives of the people. True worship is supposed to lead them to love the Lord with all their heart and all their mind and all their strength and love their neighbour as themselves. But they love gods of their own making instead. And they love themselves above everything else. The exact opposite of what was supposed to happen with the people of God. Money and stuff was so much more important than people. They took their own brothers and sisters and for a handful of silver sold them into slavery. When you're sold into slavery, that's all of you. That's stealing everything from you. Even your body. And the poor, well, they're completely worthless. Don't even bother trying to get silver for them. A pair of sandals is plenty. If they own anything at all, anything at all, take it all. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name, Amos says. And they've given up on God's morality. They do anything they want, anything. Dad, you've got that girl? I want her as well. I want that stuff. I want your stuff. And I don't care because you're nothing. If it benefits me, I'm going to take it. Human life is cheap and worthless and there's no such thing as justice. That is such a miserable picture, isn't it? Just dreadful. In verse 12, go into that. So God sends these prophets, right? So God sends Amos. God sends all these other prophets, Isaiah and Hosea. 
and they commanded the prophets, don't prophesy. So God sent prophets to warn them. It's not as if God's kind of quiet about all this and, and kind of just letting people go on their own, their own miserable way. He sends prophets after, time and time and time and time and time and time again, prophets to tell them, this is what you're doing. Come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And they tell the prophets, shut up. Don't want to hear it. They don't want God in their lives because he just gets in their way. They want what they want and they want to worship the way that they want to worship. True worship is loving God and loving his creatures. Their worship is fake and he hates it. They take and they take and truth and justice and righteousness are just nothing. And he keeps sending his prophets, keeps calling out their sin and keeps calling them to repentance. For decades and decades he'd send prophets who warned them to repent and return to their God or drought and famine would come, he warns them. They ignore the prophets, kill the prophets and drought and famine come. He'd send prophets to warn them to repent and return to their God or locusts and plagues will come. They ignored and killed the prophets so locusts and plagues came. And they ignored it. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 11. Oh, I've got the wrong thing up there. I don't know whether that's chapter 4 or chapter 5. Someone have a quick look. Doesn't matter. The one that you had up there with number 5 on there, put that up there. It's the right passage. I think I might just have the wrong thing. Is it 4 or 5? 4. Yeah, that's my fault. It says 4 here. God says... I overthrew some of you. So this is God warning again, reminding them of what's happened in the past. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, near the fire and brimstone, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. I sent, I sent this destruction upon you, but I rescued some of you. Yet you have not returned to me. Those I kept back from the destruction, even though you were a part of it and you knew that I did it. You still didn't return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So now, having ignored God's warnings, time after time after time, judgment is about to fall. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's not said in a good context. That's said in a very, very bad context. When you're disobeying him and rebelling against him and hating him and hating his creatures, you don't want him to show up. But he's about to show up. It's going to come and he's going to destroy them and they will know for sure that it's God bringing the judgment. Yet... The Lord never delights in bringing judgment upon his creatures. You know, as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, yes, get them. Lord, get them. And I realise, you know, that's actually not his heart at all. He's weeping for this. Um, You'd be happy to know that I kind of got to that as well. He doesn't delight in bringing judgment. So in chapter 5, there's another call to repentance. So even though he said, that's it. Have some more, have another opportunity. So in chapter 5, there's another call to repentance, another opportunity to return to the Lord, another chance to show their hearts have turned 
by living in justice and seeking good and not evil. Amos 5, I got it right that time. Seek good and not evil, that you might live. So the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. God is incredibly patient, incredibly patient. But if men and women persist and persist and persist and persist in rejecting him, persist in covering their ears when he speaks, eventually, enough. Chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water. I've already done that and it didn't work. A famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. What a dreadful judgment that one is. The day was coming when he would just stay silent. He'd stop calling them to repentance. He would just shut up. No more opportunity. No more hearing. No more chances to turn. Dreadful judgment. Anyway, I thought it would be a great time to just stop there and spend some time thinking about what Amos is saying to us. Is that okay? Because otherwise, what's the point? We've got to hear what he's saying to us, otherwise I'm just blowing wind. So we're living in a nation that's basically pagan. The vast majority of Australians deny their creator and reject the saviour. Just have a look at the census figures. So it seems that the majority of our neighbours are under God's judgement. That neighbour that you get on so well with that doesn't know Jesus, under God's judgement. A lot of people around us seem to be pretty decent people. The scripture tells us that they've all sinned, all of them, and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's exactly where we were. That's exactly where I was 30-something years ago. They are going to meet their God one day. The people we work with, the people we see every day in our streets, they're all going to meet their God. And judgment will come to them personally. And that isn't going to be a good day. In fact, it will be the first in an eternity of really bad days. So we need to tell them. It's a danger. It's a really very real danger. But there's also a very real way of escape from the danger. And we know, we know Jesus is that, is that way. It's the only way they're ever going to escape the danger. When God meets them, it's too late. They've got, to, they've got to do this before they come face to face. Well, how about us? What's this story about for us? Are we true worshippers of Yahweh? Or are we kind of like the Judah? Do our hearts reflect the Lord's heart? As I was preparing this, I looked at this and I th- I don't know that I can stand here and, and be called to be an elder. Now, as I was preparing, um, Thursday morning I think it was, I was sitting in the lounge room where my, where my desk is, where my study is, and I was reading through stuff and preparing, 
And I hear in the kitchen Lizzie, my, my 10 year old, um, reading out some memory verses that she was doing at school. And the, th- the thing that I heard her say was, an overseer amongst you must be blameless. I thought, are you serious? One of your Bible verses is about the call of elders in the church from Titus. And I'm reading this stuff. Wow. And I'm still here. Do our hearts reflect the Lord's heart? Do we care about the things the Lord cares about? Do we come to worship seeking what pleases him or do we come to worship expecting to be entertained or a thousand other reasons why we might be here the coffee's good or we like the people or you know we're doing something for lunch afterwards or whatever it is do we sing when we sing and Jesse I so appreciate you when you lead us because you lead us in actual worship but are we actually worshipping when we come here when we sing are we singing in actual worship or do we sing because it makes us feel good because we like the songs You know, the Lord cares about our worship. Yet while he is deeply unhappy when we come with wrong motives, he's also dead keen to turn us back. So even though there's this question yourselves, it's in the context of a God who's keen, really super keen for you to get it right and for you to be drawn into him. He wants to bring us back to worship him in truth, to truly worship him. When we're sitting there and our motives are all wrong, and which is often, I think, probably, I know, I know it is often with me, it's easy for us to think God is just angry with me because of that. And he is, but he actually wants to draw us. He doesn't want you to stay like that. He wants to draw us back into him. He doesn't want to see us fail. He wants to lift us up. He doesn't want to bring judgment on us. He wants to bring grace to us. So believers, do we find our hearts turn in love towards our neighbour? Or do we treat them with indifference, ignoring justice, ignoring the needs of those around us? How are we going with that part of it? Well, the Lord wants to change that in us as well. He wants to fill our hearts with grace and fill our hearts with love and give us his heart for the poor. And his heart for the orphan and for the widow and for the persecuted and for the downtrodden. So I'm going to throw a question out there for you. And this is one I've been asking myself and I'm going to ask it of myself again. Just ask yourself right now, would you like to be someone that deeply and truly loves the Lord? It's going to be one or two nods. (laughs) Would you like to be someone that deeply and truly loves our Lord? Do you desire to have your heart changed and turn to the Lord? Do you desire to know him and love him? Ask yourself, second thing, how's your heart towards your neighbour? So even though your heart may be cold, I don't want it to be that way. Even though your heart may be cold, do you want it to stay cold? Or do you want it to be warmed towards your neighbour? I think I actually know the answer to this. I think we actually, as believers, I think, I think we actually want to want this to be true. 
We want to love our neighbour. We want to love the Lord. I'd love the Lord to change my heart and fill me with love and compassion for those around me. So, if our hearts want to want the Lord, and if our hearts want to want to truly love our neighbour, I think we're in a really good place. I think that's a good thing. We might not be there, but we want to be there. Does that make sense? Great. I think if our hearts are open to be filled with him and changed by him, I think that is a really, really great place to be. Well, I'll let you ponder that. We'll get back to it in a minute. Let's look at the last few verses of Amos. So remember the people are facing the certain, full and complete judgment of God. Chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, Israel, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. But after 140-something verses of judgment and pointing out their sin and telling them how he's going to destroy them, there's a glimmer of hope. Amos 9, 8, yeah, you have there, 8, 11, and 12. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. No, I do actually know. (laughs) The only reason I know what it really means is because I've heard those words somewhere before. And those words are in Acts. Um, Chapter 15. The new Christians are trying to work out what's going on with the Gentiles. We know that they knew that God was saving the Jews. He's rescued a whole heap of Jews. So they all get together. Um, They're all worshipping together. It's, It's pretty much just Jews. But then Peter has this vision and all these Gentiles become Christians. All these people that aren't Jews are brought into the fold. And it just confuses everybody. Well, what are we supposed to do with these guys? They don't, they don't keep the law. They don't do, have the circumcision stuff. They don't, they don't go to synagogue. They don't go to the temple. They don't, they don't do all this stuff. What do we, how do we handle these guys? What do we do with these Gentiles? Has God really called them in? Like This thing that Peter saw, is that real or what? Well, James looks at the prophecy of Amos. That... He says, that is being fulfilled now. Through the resurrected Jesus. Jesus was the great, 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 whatever it is, grandson of King David. The booth of David, the tabernacle, the, where David lives, it's fallen. The king, his kingdom has fallen. But I'm going to raise it up. And James says, this is talking about Jesus. God says he's going to restore his people. Well, this is how he's done it. He's restored the the, the kingdom of David through his son, Jesus. David was the great king who was bringing people um, to Yahweh, 
to the worship of Yahweh. It was all crumbled and, and broken down over the, over the centuries. But now the resurrected Jesus, the great, 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 great grandson of, of David, has restored it all. He's brought it back. He's the king who's now reigning on the throne. He's resurrected. He's done it. That prophecy of Amos, this is it. The Gentiles have come in. The kingdom has been restored. Jesus has actually rescued his people. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the final words of Amos. Through Jesus, God coming to rescue his people. Their rebellion, their sin, their hatred towards God is dealt with. All that punishment, all that judgment that was on Israel and Judah and the nations is taken on board by Jesus. He's dealt with it all. It's amazing. The full wrath of God's fury against sin that Amos talks about over and over and over again is born in the body of the Saviour on the cross. Fantastic. Without the, new cover, without the New Testament, I don't reckon I would have understood what that meant. The penalty, the punishment for all their sin, for all of our sin, is taken away through his broken body and his shed blood. We deserve the full wrath of God's fury. Jesus faced that wrath and bore it in our place. How great is that? He rescued us. Salvation for us comes through acknowledging our rebellion and our sin. These guys, the problem was they didn't acknowledge what they were doing. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge that they turned from God. They didn't acknowledge that their hearts were wrong. If they had, they would have been rescued, but they didn't. For us, the salvation comes the same way that it could have come from them, acknowledging our rebellion and our sin and crying out to him in faith and trust. Lord Jesus, you came to save sinners. And Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner that you came to save. So I turn away from all that brought me judgment and I turn to you in faith and I trust you, Lord Jesus. And he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us all of our sins and he'll save all of those who call on his name. That's the message of Amos. Took a long time to get there, but it's a great message in the end. We are doomed, but Jesus rescues us. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.